Horde. Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the Right Now edition, as we take an in-depth look at the Bengals' chances of winning a third straight AFC North title with an annual guest on this podcast, Robert Weintraub. Robert writes about the Bengals during the season for Cincinnati Magazine, and prior to each season, he is among the writers featured in the FTN Football Almanac, formerly known as the Football Outsiders Almanac. If you're going to buy one preseason guide about the NFL, the Almanac is the one to buy. Plus, I'll talk to the star of the Bengals preseason opener, Tyson Anderson, about having as many interceptions in one quarter against the Packers as he did in five years at the University of Toledo. The Bengals Booth Podcast is brought to you by Kettering Health, the official health care provider of the Bengals. With more than 120 care facilities and 1,500 care providers, Kettering Health is committed to guiding you to your best health. Visit KetteringHealth.org to learn more. Now, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. It's the greatest thing since only murders in the building. When Kay Adams joined me on this podcast recently, I mentioned in our conversation that I am a huge fan of Steve Martin. That goes for just about anything Steve has ever done, including the TV show Only Murders in the Building that just started its third season on Hulu. It's a comedic look at three people who live in the same New York City apartment building investigating suspicious deaths and the chemistry between Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez is outstanding. My wife and I have just started season two, and I don't want to give anything away, but I will share this. The show features some of the best celebrity cameos of all time. Now, let's get to my first guest. In this year's FTN Football Almanac, the voluminous data projects the Bengals to win 10.2 games and gives them a 30% chance of winning 12 or more. Those projections are about as good as any team in the NFL, and yet there's a team in their own division with better numbers. And it might not be the one you think. I discuss that and all things Bengals with the guy who wrote the chapter about the team in this year's edition, Robert Weintraub. Robert, let's start with this shocker from this year's Almanac. While the Almanac projects the Bengals to be one of the best teams in the NFL, the Cleveland Browns are actually projected to have more wins and finish on top of the AFC North. Why the love for Cleveland? Well, somebody has to give it to them, right? Uh, you know, I almost walked off the uh, the almanac in protest when I saw that myself. <laughs> Most of it is just uh, minor mathematical noise. You know, we play the season out one million times uh, to arrive at these figures, and that obviously incorporates a wide, wide range of possibilities. So, you know, that's not exactly the almanac saying put all your money on Cleveland to win the AFC North this year. What it is saying is that the projection system really likes it when you add players in the off season and improve upon perceived weaknesses like the Browns did on defense. And it doesn't like it when you lose starters like the Bengals did in uh, their safeties, for example. Um, you know, that's probably just that is enough to swing it toward the Browns. And obviously with Deshaun Watson at quarterback, so much depends on him, and he's such an unknown quantity. A lot of that is taking on faith what the Browns have done sort of without Watson. So there's a bit of 
you know, quasi uh, mathematics going on there, you should say. And really what's important is that if you look at the margins where the Bengals have, you know, in 30% of those seasons won 12 or more games. You know, we, we talked about this last year and we wondered, you know, why is why are the Bengals not Super Bowl favorites, essentially? And I pointed out then the key is that, you know, for many years they were projected to have a strong percentage of seasons where they won five or fewer games and hardly any when they were going to win 12 or more. Now that's completely flipped and it's, you know, a much more likely that they win 12 or more, be a.k.a. a Super Bowl contender, than they are winning five or fewer. Obviously, the only way we can see that happening is if Joe Burrow hurts his calf again or some other body part. We don't want to go down that road and speak it into existence. But the point is, they're a very strong team. The Browns are good, too, and I think we all know that. The Ravens are good, too, and they're projected to be right there in the mix as well. So much of this comes down to, you know, so many small and really unpredictable factors that to, you know, take his gospel and maybe this is heresy coming from somebody who wrote uh, for the Almanac, but to take those numbers as gospel saying that the Browns are definitely going to win and the Bengals will be in second, um, really you shouldn't take it that way. They're all strong teams, and they're all going to be in the mix, both in the AFC North and the greater AFC uh, playoff picture. Let me follow up on additions and subtractions for the Bengals. I think at the end of last year, many of us, maybe most of us, assumed that Jermaine Pratt would be gone but that Von Bell would stay. It turned out to be the other way around. Are they better off the way it ultimately played off, played out or no? I, I mean, better off, that's difficult to ascertain. You'd have, really have to ask Lou Anarumo that question, I suppose. I think uh, both provided, obviously, pros and cons uh, to losing them. Uh, I think Pratt would have been a difficult player to replace just for what he brings. And he's a really... Uh, I call him sort of a sledgehammer in the almanac. He he plays very physical style that the that the Bengals don't have in a lot of other uh, positions. And if he had been replaced with, you know, some of the guys like Akeem Davis Gaither or the other uh, reserve players that the Bengals have at linebacker, you're you're sacrificing, you know, just a physical presence and some weight really there. And he plays so well alongside Logan Wilson. That's a that's something I think would have been difficult for the Bengals to replace. Not that uh, Von Bell isn't difficult to replace, but they obviously already had uh, a free agent, uh, excuse me, a number one draft pick in Dax Hill, sort of ready to go for Jesse Bates. And they realized, well, if Vaughn gone, we can sort of double up on that, get another high premium draft pick in Jordan Battle and, you know, bring in Nick Scott, kind of go with the, the, the numerical approach to uh, replacing Vaughn, replacing his leadership and what he and Bates brought in terms of communication and uh, veteran savvy it's difficult to quantify, especially for a metrics-based organization. I don't think anybody doubts that they will be missed. Uh, and that certainly early in the season, I think, is where you'll, where you'll see it probably more. And the idea is that they new kids grow into the jobs. They're obviously faster and, and a little bit more physical than than Bates and, and Bell maybe at this point in their career. So you're sacrificing a little bit of that savvy for just pure athletic ability. And hopefully uh, when the number – when the you know, playoff crunch or the postseason crunch comes, uh, those guys are ready to go and provide at least a, a close to the same amount of, uh, you know, production that Bell and Bates gave us. Our guest is Robert Weintraub. He writes regularly about the Bengals for Cincinnati Magazine and wrote the Bengals chapter in the FTN Football Almanac. 
this year. I want to go back to the draft because you wrote a very positive article on the digital pages of Cincinnati Magazine about the draft, and you actually have a unique perspective about Miles Murphy. You have been following him for years, correct? <laughs> yeah, I mean, following him sounds like I've been stalking him for years. I wouldn't say that's the case. Uh, I do live in the Atlanta area, and Miles, of course, played uh, down here, grew up down here. Um, and, you know, yes, yeah, so I've been watching him, and, and like all players who are great high school players, as Murphy was, I was very interested in where he would go to university and hope that he would not go to the University of Georgia, as so many others do down here. I just don't want to see Georgia uh, roll up all the players uh, who are five stars or uh, from down here. And he didn't. He went to Clemson. And I think that was a good choice for him. And and yet, at the same time, maybe he would have benefited a little bit from Georgia's ability to crank out incredible um, professional grade defensive linemen. Because I think Murphy did underachieve a bit at Clemson. Uh, there were various factors involved in that. They had some defensive coaching changes there. Uh, the entire Clemson program seemed to go through a bit of a, you know, for their, by their standards, a down cycle a little bit in, in Murphy's last couple of years there. Uh, his fellow linemen had some injuries and he was playing a little bit out of position then sometimes. So, you know, there, there were some mitigating circumstances there, but there's no question that he has all the specs of a, uh, of a classic NFL defensive lineman and not just as a player, you know, we think so much about defensive ends in the NFL as just pure edge rushers and, you know, the Trey Hendrickson type who just, you know, get after the passer. But really what I think we'll see from Murphy, certainly in the beginning of his career, uh, is more like what Sam Hubbard brought when he was uh, just breaking into the league, which is really setting the edge, strong run defense. Even when he was not playing great uh, against the pass at Clemson, he was certainly a strong run defender, uh, has a really good use of hands. And uh, is very quick in that sense against the run, which is a sort of unheralded trait. So I think we'll see uh, him contribute in that sense. And he might come off the field on third downs and play the first couple downs, spell Hendrickson a little bit, play against the run more as a, as a rookie and maybe into his second year. Um, and then really, you know, hopefully develop into the all around kind of edge player that uh, a first round pick and certainly that he has the qual the qualities that he can evince in the NFL. No doubt about that. Did their approach to the draft suggest anything to you? Yeah, I, I write about this in the Almanac and I think you see big picture that the Bengals and the Kansas city chiefs are really eyeing each other from a, across the Midwest there a little bit and uh, are sort of going and drafting and, and arranging their rosters uh, with one eye on each other. We saw that when the Chiefs uh, drafted a bunch of defensive players who were, you know, faster after getting really blown off the turf there by the Bengals offense in 2021. Uh, and we saw the effect of that last year, they, they're, especially in the championship game. Their, their speed on defense really showed up uh, against the Bengals in that in that. Uh, AFC title game, I hate to bring up, but uh, and every time I think about it, it makes me more angry. But the Chiefs give them credit. They played well defensively in that game. And I think in this sense, you saw a little bit of the same thing. The Bengals um, really kind of drafted and went for more speed all the way through the lineup, really, especially on defense. The defense in large part because, of course, uh, the offense is where all the money is about to be going when the Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase and T Higgins assumedly signed their big contracts. So uh, they had to get younger, they had to get cheaper and they really wanted to get faster on defense. And that I think really uh, was a big part of their draft strategy 
and why they you know, went after a lot of these guys on the defensive side of the ball who can really run DJ Turner, obviously, uh, and Murphy for a big guy can really run battle is certainly no slow. And Chase Brown has excellent speed as well. So, I mean, that's, that really seemed to me the overarching theme of the draft, of course, you know, in the war room, they may not have been thinking that way at the time, but looked like that's what they were trying to do uh, from a big picture perspective. Robert Weintraub is our guest. You can follow him on Twitter at Rob Wine, R-O-B-W-E-I-N. The big offseason move was big, landing 6'8", 345-pound Orlando Brown Jr. to play left tackle. What does the data tell us about him, how good he is, and the impact that a better offensive line will have on Joe Burrow in this offense? Well, I hate to bring up the fact that Orlando Brown actually led the uh, NFL in pressures allowed by our charting stats. Now, part of that is because he also played the most snaps, I believe, of any left tackle on the league, or maybe he was second. But, uh, you know, so percentage wise, that was not the case. But in sheer counting numbers, he had more pressures allowed than anyone. That was also a factor a bit of the way Kansas City plays. The Patrick Mahomes kind of run around schoolyard style kind of allows for more pressures at the same time. I think you'll see that, you know, the Bengals, the way they want to play Burrow, getting the ball out much faster, a much more rhythmic style of offense will help Brown. Uh, he certainly wasn't that way in Baltimore either when you know Lamar was kind of doing the same thing, kind of running around and, you know, giving up a lot of uh, pressures because of the time he spent in the, in the backfield looking for receivers. Burrow doesn't play that way at all. So I think you'll see that uh, number come down. And what he does mainly is just kind of raise the talent floor to a place where it hasn't been before. Uh, certainly not in the last several years and certainly not in Joe Burrow's career here in Cincinnati. So uh, that can only help. And you move Jonah Williams over to right tackle and, you know, dare I say it, maybe he's a better right tackle than he is a left tackle. I mean, stranger things have happened. He played right tackle at Alabama. All the word out of training camp has been that he looks pretty natural over there. And then, you know, if you settle that issue, obviously we know that the interior part of the line has been pretty much settled. Ted Karras with a great season last year that was really kind of unheralded. Everybody loves him because of his personality, but I don't think he got the credit for being really strong against the past like he was. Uh, obviously, you know, Alex Kappa sets new standards for toughness and Cordell Volson looking to make that leap from year one to year two after starting every game. You can only get, get better from there. I think right now you're looking at a team that, you know, they – went up from I think 31st to 16th in our uh, adjusted sack rate um, from 21 to 22. Are they going to make another 15 slot leap to the number one spot in the, in the NFL? Probably not. But if they can move up just into the top 10, I mean, you know, all we've ever wanted is Joe Burrow behind a top 10 offensive line. Right. And even more important, if they can run the ball in that sort of the same with that sort of same effectiveness, that just makes the offense even more dangerous. Uh, you know, we brought Joe Mixon back and, and a rookie behind him in Chase Brown is sort of an unknown quantity to the running game. Uh, Joe struggled a bit last year in, in what we call second level and open field yards. He wasn't breaking tackles very much. Uh, so it'll be incumbent upon the offensive line really to make the running game work more than it has in the past necessarily. And I think you have the talent to do so. Uh, and, you know, barring injury, which obviously was their bugaboo at the end of the season last year, uh, they're in as good a shape as they've been on the offensive line since, you know, the glory days, maybe of, of Willie Anderson in there, or dare I even go back to the, uh, the Munoz Montoya days, but let's not go crazy, but uh, they're certainly in a much better place than they've been in, in recent memory. And that's a good thing. 
More with Robert coming up. But first, here's a quick reminder that the Bengals Booth Podcast is brought to you by Paycor. More than 29,000 customers trust Paycor to help them recruit, pay, engage, and retain employees. Learn more at Paycor.com. And by Alta Fiber, future-proof fiber internet capable of delivering multi-gigabit speeds designed to take your home, business, and community to a new level. Elevate your connection with Alta Fiber. So you talked about Mixon and Brown. You write in the almanac that the Bengals are thin at running back and tight end. So let's move to tight end. Are you buying Irv Smith Jr. as a viable replacement for Uzama and Hayden Hurst? Uh, with all the money in my pockets, which is, uh, you know, only about 15 bucks right now. So maybe I'm not uh, putting too much money on the line there. I mean, obviously with Irv, it's all about his health. I mean, he certainly has the talent to do so. He he can certainly be a viable replacement for, as you say, Uzama and, and Hurst, both of whom sort of, you know, had similar careers as talented, but not exactly productive tight ends before uh, they got paired with Joe Burrow. And Burrow got them both huge contracts uh, at the end of his one year with both of those guys. So uh, if as long as Irv can stay on the field, which he has not really been able to do in the past, uh, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't. It helps in a bit that the Bengals, you know, they don't really value tight ends schematically the way a lot of other teams do. They hardly ever play two tight ends. Um, they hardly ever go with multi running backs either, uh, which is part of the reason why I think that their strategy overall was sort of to, if not minimize, then, you know, to sort of put those two positions on the back burner. They play mostly three wide receivers and they want those three wide receivers to win individual battles. And they play out of empty a lot, uh, schematically speaking, more than almost any team in the league and all those factors. So, you know, you don't need Irv Smith to be a Kelsey or, or a Gronk kind of player. You just need him to be a guy like a Hurst or an Uzama who takes the pressure off up the middle of the field who defenses have to honor uh, and to make the occasional big play, let Joe Burrow do the rest. And uh, there's no reason to think why, as long as he's healthy, the Bengals have something in him. No question he has the talent to do so. So when the Bengals drafted Joe Burrow, you coined my favorite expression about him. He oozes awesomeness out of every pore, except for his calf, as it turns out right now. As you looked at the data from last year, does anything jump out? about Joe Burrow's growth? Yeah, you know, it's tough to uh, ooze out your calf pores when you have the compression sleeve on it, right? I think that was the problem there. It blocked his awesomeness. Um, Yeah, well, you know, we talked about it last year, which was that you were surprised that he had a a difficult time in the red zone um, from an efficiency standpoint. And what jumped off the numbers this year was the his dramatic improvement in that area, which, you know, what we were hoping for, we all sort of knew he had it in him. And then, you know, this is Joe Burrow we're talking about. There's nothing he can't do. Uh, So it was just a matter of sort of getting the offense to kind of rally around him a little bit and, and make those red zone efficiency plays. And they did so. uh, And they were, you know, something else that leapt off was that they were, you know, not just top eight, I believe in red zone offense, but also on defense. And they were, you know, top five uh, in late and close situations, both on offense and defense, and top three in offense and third down percentage, you know, and they were extremely good in what we call situational football, the cliche, I know, but it's true. And, you know, when we're talking about how small the difference is between the Bengals and the Browns and the Ravens 
something that's been so critical to the Bengals' success over the last couple of years has been their, you know, really excellent job in these critical situations, both on both sides of the ball. And obviously with Burrow, you know, he's proven now that that's what his, you know, that's when he really shines the most is when you need it the most. And when you need him to make plays, whether it's a big, you know, touchdown leading drive or just getting a first down to kill the clock. Um, so now that he has that kind of red zone bugaboo out of his system, if it even was a problem, it might just been a one year sort of statistical, you know, non-entity, but uh, he only had that small sample size to draw from. I think, you know, as long as he can keep up those kind of numbers in those important situations, we obviously know the talent that is surrounding him. They'll make the big plays. The little plays that Burrow continues uh, to make will spell the difference in keeping the team right at the top of the AFC pack. Couple more questions for Robert Weintraub, who writes about the Bengals for Cincinnati Magazine and wrote the Bengals chapter in the Football Almanac this year. The AFC is loaded. The quarterback gauntlet is incredible in the conference this year. So I assume that the team that somehow makes it through this gauntlet is going to do so by the the most narrow margins imaginable. Is that basically what the data tells us? Yeah, you know, they got to play us. Let's remember that. Uh, that's certainly uh, an important element in this. Tough as the schedule might look uh, when the other teams look at it and they have to play Cincinnati, that's not a good thing either now. Um, I think that gets lost sometimes. And surprisingly enough, the schedule this year, and this is always sort of, you know, what looks like a hard or a soft schedule at the beginning of the year might never turn out to be that way by season's end. You never know that the league is full of surprises and that's what makes it so compelling. But uh, by our numbers, the Bengals' schedule this year is is pretty average. Right in the middle of the pack, their efficiency of their opponents is exactly zero, meaning it's not you know positive, it's not negative. It's it's a very workable schedule. The the schedule rotation, of course, brings uh, you know the NFC South, uh, the uh, NFC West, and the AFC South, which at least on paper, again, seems like a good thing. Uh, of course, you have a very tough division, and that's always going to be something that kind of is an anchor to the Bengals uh, in comparison to other teams around the league, but that's just their cross to bear. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think that the Bengals approach it that way. I think they look at every game, like they got the best quarterback or at least, you know, one of the best quarterbacks. They don't worry about, you know, Oh, good. we have to face Trevor Lawrence this year. or We have to, you know, face Josh Allen again this year, whatever. Again, I think that mantra of they got to play us, you know, it sounds, it looks great on a t-shirt, but it it really is sort of an organizing principle of the team now. And think how far and, and how much that's changed over the last couple of years when, you know, all we ever thought about was, oh, here comes, you know, the Steelers, we got to play the 49ers this year, whatever. Uh, and now with the shoes on the other foot and teams around the league think to themselves, oh, we got to play Cincinnati. I mean, that just that in itself, that kind of mindset, it's not really a metrics or an analytics thing necessarily, but it's great as a Bengals fan to know that that exists around the league. All right. Final thing for Robert Weintraub. I grew up in New York State. We got the New York City TV stations on cable. So I watched Mets games, Yankees games, Knicks games, Nets games, Rangers games, Devils games, etc. You are doing something called the New York City 1000 now we all like lists i've never heard of anybody tackling a list that included 1000 things on it explain the new york city 1000 
Yeah, I, I guess the best way to explain it is uh, not so temporary insanity. Uh, I just, um, you know, I, I started to think about it. I'm from New York, too, in case people don't know, uh, from the city. And, you know, I've, except for the Bengals, I'm obviously a big New York sports fan as well. And I just got and a big fan of history as well, both sports history and sort of greater New York and American history. And it's just I started thinking about all the incredible stuff that's been, you know, gone on through the years there. And I started thinking about the wide range, not just the teams you mentioned, but all the boxing and horse racing and golf and tennis and everything else that goes on in New York. And for some uh, wild, insane reason, I decided to uh, not just make a list, but to write about each one of these. So I have a sub stack like uh, so many other people in the media these days. Uh, called, as you said, the NYC 1000, and you can go to that uh, substack uh, anytime and check it out. And, you know, the sheer volume of games over the years, you know, sports have been going on in New York City for about 140 years plus now. Um, and I just, you know, I started at 50 and then I went to 100 very quickly and that became 500 very quickly. And then I wanted to, you know, include all these great athletes and names and people who go through there. Uh, who've gone through the city even just for one-off appearances like a Muhammad Ali or you know Bill Russell and all-time greats like that and write about those and so very quickly it got to be 1,000 uh, and I'm counting it down I'm somewhere in the 800s now uh, so you can it's all archived though and sometime in probably about 10 years we'll get to number one but uh, the, the issue is that it all had to happen in sort of the New York City footprint so it's not you know, Super Bowl three, where the Jets uh, won down in Miami, that doesn't count. It's got to happen in New York. So that's my little, you know, uh, conceit with the whole thing. But there's even with that, there's more than enough uh, teams and or I should say matches, events, games, fights, horse races uh, to really make that list uh, difficult to narrow down, surprising as it sounds. Mm. And uh you know, one of these days before I shuffle up this mortal coil, I'll get to number one and uh, share it with all of you. But uh, the more people who check it out, I do think you'll be entertained and maybe learn a few things along the way. It's very entertaining based on the ones that I've read so far. And since you're in the 800s, I'm guessing it's going to be quite a while before we get to a 39-year-old Jimmy Connors in the 1991 U.S. Open, which might be my favorite New York City area sports moment. That's fascinating. Yeah, he that's definitely high up on the list. Uh, and it sort of encompasses a lot of what New York sports is about electricity, personality, uh, incredible, you know, a display of athletic ability. And that, you know, the way I rank these events is not just by, you know, on the court field, whatever. Uh, that's one category, but it's also, you know, or is it a Hall of Fame person, a Hall of Fame athlete involved? Is there, you know, something that really meant something to history involved? Or was it just a one-off? It was, was it important to New York itself? Obviously, a Connors at the U.S. Open kind of hits all those sweet spots uh, along with others. It, there, were, there were some that were higher, and there were even some tennis matches that might have been a little higher. But that's way up on the list for sure. And, uh, you know, Jimbo, a Californian. Uh, really came to encompass a lot of what New York City and New York City athletics and that personality is really all about. Um, so he's made the list in a couple of other areas as well. So uh, if you're not just a football fan, but a fan of any other sport, you can definitely find something uh, to enjoy in the list. No doubt about it. Highly recommend the Almanac again this year. Your chapters about the Bengals and the Browns are both outstanding. We look <laughs> forward to your weekly uh, articles about the Bengals on the 
digital pages of Cincinnati Magazine, and I always appreciate your time this time of the year. Thanks so much. Look forward to continuing to read the NYC 1000. Greatly appreciate it, Dan. Have a great season, and give my love to your broadcast partner, Dave Lapham, as well. You don't have to be a fan of New York City sports to enjoy Robert List of the top 1,000 events. His writing is the fun part. If you're interested in checking it out, just search for NYC 1000 Substack. The Bengals Booth Podcast is brought to you by Bengals Picks and Ultimate Bengals. They're free to play with tickets and signed merchandise up for grabs. Find both inside the Bengals app. Week two of the preseason takes the Bengals to Atlanta on Friday night. And while it sounds like the starters might get a few snaps, the backups will still see most of the action. That includes young players like second-year safety Tyson Anderson, who had two interceptions in a span of about eight minutes in last week's loss to the Packers. I spoke to the 24-year-old this week. Tyson, you were the star of the preseason opener last Friday night. You had two interceptions, including a 43-yard pick six. It had to be thrilling for you. Could you sleep after the game? Uh, no, man, I ain't really. I, I, I ain't really sleep too much. I was just up enjoying it with my family. Honestly, we just kicked it up all night. Honestly, we were just at the house, just enjoying each other company. You're from the Toledo area, so mm-hmm. you had a bunch of folks down for the game. Yep, my, my dad, my mom, grandparents, sister, her friends, and a family friend was there too. So we had a lot of people. You had two interceptions in the game. You had two interceptions in your career at Toledo. Was it bad luck at Toledo, or is there something about the things you've learned here or the defense you're playing in now that helps explain that two interceptions in one half performance? Yeah, I'll probably say at Toledo just uh, had a few dropped opportunities too. Mm -hmm. Just uh, so just making the most of my opportunities. Just whenever the ball hit my hands, just making sure I come down with it. That's more so been my emphasis because I know I dropped a few at Toledo. And then obviously Coach Lou just putting us in, in, in great situations. And our DB coaches, Coach Chuck, Coach Coach Rob, just uh, just giving us knowledge to go out there and play fast and make plays. I'm glad you brought up Lou Anarumo because after the game, you were naturally bombarded by reporters. And you kept saying time and time again, Coach Anarumo puts us in great position for to sure make does. plays. What stands out about playing for him now for one year? Uh, I mean, he's just a player's coach. The guys just rally around him. Uh, he, Like I said, he just always puts us in great positions, got a, a prayerful of, of things we do defensively that kind of just a lot of stuff that we do to kind of throw quarterbacks off and throw offensive coordinators off, and we do a good job at protecting the end zone and things like that. So he for sure does a great job of just switching it up, getting us in and out of calls, uh, stuff like that. We're visiting with safety Tyson Anderson. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the footage of your teammate, Mike Thomas, Mm -hmm. almost moved to tears after the game because he was so happy for you and so proud of you. What did that mean to you? No, yeah, man, I always tell uh, everybody, uh, my family back home when I was going through all I was going through last year, it was always uh, one dude who I knew I could always talk to, always could lean on, and it was always Mike, whether that was me going to watch film with him, whether that was him inviting me to his his, uh, house on Thanksgiving when my family was three hours away and just kicking it with his family and his kids and stuff like that. So Mike, man, he's just a legend in my eyes and been playing the game a long time, and no matter what in this league, you really don't meet too many people like him that kind of give back to, to the younger guys like he does and just happy to been influenced by him and just have him a part of my life for real. You had a hamstring injury last year. Mm-hmm. So the last time that you played prior to last Friday night was the final preseason game 
last year. Yep. What did you miss about playing in football games last season? Man, just the, the, the crowd, the reaction of the crowd, and just that brotherhood of just when you make plays and things like that and your guys just celebrating with you and just being out there, that camaraderie of just being with your brothers and just not wanting to make mistakes because you don't want to let the guy next to you down. You weren't able to practice for most of the year last mm -hmm. year. You did get to at the very end of the season around playoff time. What did you do during your rookie year? Honestly, just a lot of a lot of body work, obviously, a lot of a lot of resting and then just sharpening up on understanding the playbook. So because I know if I know the playbook, it allows me to play a lot faster. And that's kind of the things that I that I took on and just implementing different things for my body, just chiropractic work, uh, acupuncture, massage, Pilates and things like that. Just to, because last year, obviously, I it was shortened because of injury. And this year, I'm just trying to do everything I can just to stay healthy and stay available. Do you feel like you're different physically from all the things you described? Uh, for sure. Just got a lot stronger, a lot more flexible. Those are the two biggest things. Mm. We're talking to Tyson Anderson. You're playing for a spot on the 53-man roster this year. What do you think you need to show the coaches in order to earn one of those spots? I'd probably just say just continue to just be be myself, be be humble, be accountable, just fly around, just make all the plays that, that come my way. and and. Everything else will handle itself. That's all I can do is take care of me, control my controllables, and God will handle the rest. One of those things that is controllable is your effort on special teams, yep. and it looks like you are willing and available to do everything and, and anything that Darren Simmons asked you to do. No, for sure, man. Me and Coach Simmons got a, got a pretty good relationship. He's just trying to earn that trust. Like, it's all it's about. If he don't trust you, if the coaches don't trust you, there's no way you could be out there on the field. So just earning that trust that I can be in the right spot at the right time, knowing that I can do the right assignment when it uh, needs to be done, and knowing I can do that assignment properly with the right technique at all times. So that's what I'm trying to do. Two great players and leaders at your position left at the end of the year, mm -hmm. Jesse Bates and Von Bell. When that happened, did you look at a greater opportunity to contribute at the safety position this year? Oh, yeah, you for sure see that. And, and I'm so thankful for those guys. Just like Mike Thomas, uh, Jesse and Von meant a lot to me as well. Just the, the knowledge and the approach to the game and just how they how, how they, they were true pros. So just to watch that and sit back and just observe how they watch film, observe how they were attentive in meetings, observe when they walked into meetings, observe all those things that made them great. It was just good, good to see. So yeah, obviously them leaving for sure. Somebody got to step up and I've been grinding for a year now to, to show them that, show the coaches, show everybody and prove to myself that I can be the guy. You showed it in week one of the preseason. Best of luck in doing it again in Atlanta. No, thank you so much. We'll continue to stack days and get better. That's Tyson Anderson. Friday's game in Atlanta kicks off at 7.30, and our pregame coverage on the Bengals radio network gets underway at 6. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bengals Picks and Ultimate Bengals. They're free to play with tickets and signed merchandise up for grabs. By Paycor, the official HR software provider of the Bengals. By AltaFiber, future-proof fiber internet. Elevate your connection with AltaFiber. And by Kettering Health, the official health care provider of the Bengals. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find us. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.